We're back! Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, we talk Netflix, Amazon, Andy Lau, because he is as big as those two big entities. And we talk about the film Book of Love. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. And welcome back to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox. And coming to you live from his news desk in the food court of the Bellagio is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey, Paul. Clearly, I'm, I'm here at the food court because I've lost all my money at the table. Yeah. Yep. Indeed. Yep. You, someone you, someone you, save me. Someone buy me a boat ticket back to Hong Kong. You please. bet it all on black, right? And it's just all gone. Yeah. Now you're in the red. Uh, well, how you doing, sir? It's been a while since we sat down and talked. Doing well. Uh, things are, you know, churning, and work is still work, and uh, life goes on. How about yourself, yes, sir? indeed. Well, it was a month of madness for me. Uh, my relatives came into town pretty much at the very dead, well, I'd say the last two weeks or so of teaching, uh, when I really start to get into the busiest part of the semester, because I've usually got... Uh, piles of papers coming in, assignments to mark, lots of stuff going on. And then in the midst of this, I'm also, you know, trying to arrange time to see the family. I've got night school myself going on. And then, uh, you know, they wanted to do, uh, we wanted, to, I took a day off from work so we could do the Disney thing. So just, it was just a lot going on. I do apologize that we've been uh, away for a few weeks, though we did have uh, the special episode finally get put out. We actually recorded that, I think, at the start of May. And it was we, like after the opening week of Civil War, yeah, and we only—I only just managed to get that out because I, I literally was just going to work, coming home from work, time with the family, crashing to sleep, and getting up and going back to work. And um, I had no, no really real extra time to sit down to edit to to do anything. Uh, I didn't even get out to see any local movies, with the exception of what we're talking about today. And I only just got to see this the other day, and it's been out a couple weeks already. So, yeah, busy time. Um, you know, it's always like that going into the summer. Once I get classes out of the way, I do have a summer class I'm teaching, but hopefully things will be back to the uh, smooth and uh, narrow, I guess. And we'll be just uh, doing regular shows whenever there's uh, good stuff to talk about, like this week, right? Yeah, yeah. A um, couple of good stories. I mean, the thing is, these days, you don't really, there are really uh, big stories that we have to, like, report immediately. Um, but yeah, so so there's not a lot of news built up, but we try to keep more timely with with you know more timely topics instead of reporting stuff that's already gone by for the past two weeks. Yes. Um, but there should be some interesting things to talk yeah. about and uh and the film. What what's the film this week again? Yeah, we are about? talking about uh, Book of Love, the kind of sequel, right, for uh, Tang Wei I, and uh, it it is a sequel in the way that Ten Cloverfield Lane is a sequel to Cloverfield. Sure. Yes. Yep. That's for what. It's a thematic brother, <laughs> uh, thematic sister, fork or some shit. 
don't know. All right. <laughs> well, we will get to talk about that in just a little bit. Before that, we're going to get into our news. So I'm going to throw it back over to Kevin at his news desk. At the news desk, uh, a couple of you know big streaming deals, but let's let's look across from the Pacific. Uh, Paul, you want to talk about uh, Disney and uh, Netflix? Yeah, so this is, I guess, a fairly recent deal. I think it's popped up in the past week or so at the time of recording. And apparently there was a deal signed way back in 2012 between Netflix and Disney where Netflix was going to get exclusive rights to new Disney content. Uh, and that kicks in this year, which means they're going to get some really interesting things, starting with, I think, Zootopia, with uh, Captain America Civil War, with coming films like Doctor Strange and uh, uh, Rogue One, which is, you know, Star Wars Rogue One, because Disney has all of it. They've got their stuff. They've got the Marvel stuff. They've got the Star Wars stuff. So as I understand it, this is not going to affect things retroactively. But it is going to affect things going forward from this point. So anything that's a Disney title, which includes a Marvel title and a Star Wars title, is going to get exclusivity with regard to Netflix. Now, I've looked around in a couple places. I've read a few articles. There's an article by Forbes. There's, you know, other lots of other AV sites that are covering this news as it relates to movies and video. What I can't seem to find out, what nobody's touched on, and maybe I'm just too naive in, in, in my thinking, but my question is, does this mean that we won't get digital purchasable content via iTunes, via Amazon? Because if that's the case, that kind of annoys me as I'm you know somebody who's a bit of a collector, and that includes digital collections. I'm slowly starting to try and build up a, a digital Disney collection and, uh, you know, uh, digital Star Wars titles and things like this. So now I'm wondering, is this deal exclusive for just membership streaming? So it, by that, what I mean is uh, something like Amazon Prime, where if you're a member, they give you lots of Prime titles to stream whenever you want, which is basically the same thing that Netflix does. Is that some, seen as something separate from when I actually buy something outright? as a digital copy of something and then I can stream it from um, Amazon or iTunes whenever I want and it is there in my digital database in the cloud in you know perpetuity hopefully uh, unless those companies ever go under no I, I don't think that Disney is going to give up digital purchasing rights to Netflix you know they're going to give you know Netflix has to offer up billions in order to get complete total digital rights i think netflix only bought on-demand streaming rights which is uh essentially what amazon prime does because there are actually quite a few services out there who but what, what netflix i think trying to beat is is the uh, likes of hulu and amazon prime and amazon video for, uh specifically um and and like it says stars or the other on-demand services i think that the film will continue to be to be uh, available on uh to purchase on uh, uh, rental, I think, as well. I'm not sure about rentals, but anyway, the thing is, this only covers U.S. rights, Paul. I mean, if, if you're in Hong Kong, you have an iTunes account, you should have no problem. And I think Netflix won't be, won't, they don't even have the money to buy global 
streaming right of mm-hmm. these films. So so clearly, um, they they actually probably got a very small share of the so called streaming rights. I think it's only going to be on streaming platforms, and it won't affect your your uh, at least on iTunes. I'm not sure what they would do about Amazon, but I'm pretty sure that the film will the films will continue to be available on iTunes. That's that is a huge you know, digital sales is still a huge part of Disney's business, and they're not about to give that up just to give it to to Netflix. Yeah, the other sort of sub angle of this that concerns me too, not so much me, but I, I think it's something my dad would be interested in because he still buys a lot of physical media titles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he buys Blu-rays, and they come with these ultraviolet codes. Digital copies. they did, which included, you know, a digital download copy. So I'm wondering right. if, if this is somehow going to impact that kind of sort of combo sale or if that still falls under the idea of, of a digital direct purchase. Because, I mean, when they talk about, when they when you look at the articles, the articles simply talk about the idea of streaming. And, you know, the, I'm, I'm guessing the legalese is, they're not getting too deep into the legalese, which is where maybe my point would get answered. Because when I think of streaming, if I've bought, you know, I bought the, like Snow White, right? And so I can stream that anytime I want, but I can do the same through Netflix because I have a Netflix membership and a Prime membership with something that's under Prime. So for me, it's all streaming content, right? It's some of it I own and some of it is part of a block that I'm a member and I get access to that block. So I guess I'm just not very clear on how they are sort of dividing up this pie in terms of the definitions they're using. Now, what I see here, I, I sort of looked it up other articles. It seems like what they're calling is called exclusive pay TV home rights. Mm. So, you know, rights that usually go to channels like HBO or uh, Showtime or Stars, And I guess this also will cover, you know, streaming sites, like I said, Hulu. Right. And so, so Netflix is now put under the so-called pay TV home um rights so so this is what they call i guess because it is um on on demand and i guess people watch it at home it's only available at home so um this would not cover digital this does not say anything about covering digital purchase um so don't worry i think i think you have nothing to worry about there i know that disney they have their so-called disney everywhere thing which um, every time i buy a disney movie a digital movie on amazon they're like link up to the Disney Go account, and then I go and I try and link up, and they're like, sorry, you can't do that. Uh, and I don't know if it's because I'm region blocked. I've even tried it through my VPN, and it's still uh, they still don't let me do it for some reason. Maybe my account with them is just borked, but they have their own kind of platform for stuff that you buy that you can then stream through them and, and through their app. So it's a very interesting deal, and I guess, I mean, do you think that this bodes that some point would could Disney possibly buy out Netflix? Um it's hard to say. I mean, I think net I think this is is a big big huge pill for Disney to swallow. Um Disney is not in the um they're in the in the in the business of building a Disney brand, you know what I mean? They're not really in the business of just swallowing up companies. Um everything builds up the so-called Disney brand even in a way Marvel is for theme parks. Right. If they buy a Marvel, they buy a Pixar and Star Wars, all that stuff helps their theme parks and helps their merchandising. I don't think they're going to put in a bloodline theme park in in Disneyland anytime soon. Right. So, um, no, I I don't think that's going to happen, especially if Disney continues. Just want to think about you know multi-platform promotion. Um, I don't think it's very likely they'll buy out Netflix. Speaking of theme parks, I mentioned that I went. We we took our little one. 
for her first trip to Disney. Did you, did you find a, a Bloodline theme park? Did not, no, did not. Um, and the theme parks really have gotten a lot busier. We went really on an off day, and we really didn't get to do much of anything just because the lines are so long, and you get in and you do two things, and by the time you're done, it's lunchtime, and then it's a, a long line for lunch. And you know, I know this is all first first world problems, but I, I seem to remember... I can remember a time when I was very young in Florida and and you would go we would go to Disney World and you could pretty much hit all of the the different worlds and and get on, you know, rides and and see attractions in each place and you know be fairly, you know, have a, have a fairly full day of it. Now it's like you need two or three days just just for the one park it seems. And we didn't get to do that much, but the one thing that really surprised me, the one thing that's, because I haven't been to a Disney in a number of years, uh, I'd say at least six or seven, um, certainly before my daughter was born. And it's just weird to go into like the Emporium and see all this Marvel stuff there and all this uh, Star Wars stuff there, where at one time it was just the Disney stuff, right? So now you're seeing Mickey Mouse next to uh, all these really cool, you know, Marvel toys and, and Star Wars toys and shirts and everything. I didn't buy anything because it's all super marked up. I mean, I, I looked at one T-shirt, a Star Wars T-shirt that I thought was pretty cool. And I pulled out my phone and I like, scanned it on Amazon and it was like half the price. <laughs> so I didn't yeah. buy it. What um, were you talking about, Paul? I always remember that Mickey fought aside, fought, you know, fought the uh, Sith with Yoda. <laughs> yeah. He was always um, part Jedi. I always yeah, remember that. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah. Imagining our pop culture history, right? All right, next up at the... Well, now we we talked about Netflix. We're going to talk about Amazon then. Um, yeah, just today, um, uh, Disney... Amazon, sorry, Amazon Japan uh, finally announced the first lineup of programming, uh, original programming for Amazon Japan. I think Japan is Amazon's um, probably second or third biggest market they have amazon uk they have amazon germany and uh japan is the only it's uh japan and china i think are the only localized uh sites for amazon and of course they're not going to do any amazon video on ch- in china anytime soon but um japan they have a pretty big operation and they have now um announced their first slate of uh original content kind of chasing um chasing netflix um stuff includes um, a show from uh, Yuichi Fukada, who is the uh, creator or the uh, director of uh, um, Hentai Kamen. It's a Superman who who apparently gets his superpower from smelling uh, from wearing women's underwear. Um, there's already in two films, and he's a very fairly prolific uh, writer. So his new show, uh, Businessman vs. Aliens, is going to launch in September. There's a uh, girl's comic book um, based drama called Baby Steps. It's a teen rom com. Um, there's one about um, a historical drama called Maji about four Japanese youths who go who journeyed to the Vatican nearly four decades ago and returns home to find Christianity banned. Um, but actually, unlike Netflix, um, Netflix is, uh, by the way, releasing their first original series this week um, called Hibana. Um, unlike 
Netflix, Amazon seems a bit hesitant to announce the people they have behind the content. Um, not sure why, but um, it seems like they're just sort of creating these these content, and it seems like they're very much for localized market. They're not really about change. Unlike their American counterpart, American counterparts, they can't wait to announce all the altairs they have behind the films they've acquired. But it seems like Amazon is a bit hesitant, in, like Amazon Japan is a bit hesitant in announcing who they've got behind these shows. Um, but anyway, um, I don't think that I think Amazon has never gone for like a big global strategy, even for their um, they've only got we, they've only recently announced global rights for a few of their shows, including the man, the high castle uh, stuff like that. If you look on Amazon video, you see these couple of shows called, you know, that they list under shows you can watch abroad, which pretty much says that they have global rights to these shows, but they don't cover um, quite a few of the series. Um, as you see, but um, I wonder if they, they are chasing, you know, in films, they're not chasing Netflix model, which is day and date, global release, no no theatrical release, um, um, as opposed to Amazon, which Amazon films, they're into the, the traditional theatrical release model, which is release the films, wait for a couple of months, and then make it available on their, their uh, video platform. Um, Paul, uh, did you have a chance to read the article? What, what do you think of these? Uh, it's a very short, short uh, roundup of the content. But is it, it? Are you? Would you be interested in building a VPN account for for Japan's account to watch these shows? Uh, that's like I, the American uh, Amazon. I don't. I don't know. One of one of my uh, experiences with dealing with Amazon and in different countries like China and, and Japan has been it's kind of difficult to navigate uh, and they don't even like I think Amazon China they have a button for English and you press it and nothing happens it's uh, so you really got to be kind of able to, to, to go through I guess in you know the Japanese the kanji and the hiragana and katakana on the site to they don't have an English site yet do they no they well yeah. they, they, they they have a uh, English option but only really for the logistical stuff which is to to check out and stuff like that I mean I, my hope is that if there's something really really good that it eventually filter its way over to uh, other Amazon networks right um, the thing is Amazon hasn't globalized their their video networks just like or, or their their video platform the way that netflix has and i'm i'm not sure if they ever will i mean the thing is their localized sites they haven't really fully localized their websites yet and if they launch a a globalized video platform i think they would try to um they might have to globalize their shipping and their shopping website as well and that's proven to be very very difficult apparently um uh you know in china they i've ordered from amazon china before and getting them shipped to hong kong was kind of a pain it cost an enormous amount of money and it shipped the shipping costs as much as shipping from the states and and it just seems like an uh, impossible operation to try and localize make localized versions of their shopping website and i can't imagine amazon uh global amazon version without that shopping site yeah the thing too with amazon is they've done quite a number of pilots you know the 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 u.s amazon where they will you know say oh we've got this thing coming and they'll put the pilot out there they'll let the prime members look at it and and rate it and then some of them just they drop they just don't even if if it doesn't meet a certain standard they don't even run with it i remember i saw one that i thought was pretty okay Uh, i think it was called the after back in uh, 2014 and they never picked it up. They had uh, they had uh, pretty some pretty big names behind it too, and it just never went anywhere. 
and you don't you can't get they don't release a lot of news about it like they don't come out and say okay we're definitely not doing this one now or we are going ahead with this one so it's a i wonder if this is their same kind of strategy that they're doing in japan no, it seems like they've they've um uh unlike unlike the the uh, pilot seasons they have, it seems like they are going to sign up for the entire season. It just seems like because Japan doesn't really quite work on a pilot mm. uh, model because once these crew, the whole crew or the white writers, when they commit, they commit for the whole whole series, which is usually about ten episodes. They commit to the entire series and they don't um they don't go they don't get cut off after shooting one episode because the writing everything is planned is serial serial based so. So it would be, I think, um, they wouldn't sign up for these shows with only a pilot. But yeah, um, actually, interestingly enough, like I said earlier, Netflix is about to um, uh, premiere their first. Well, because Netflix had a has a production partnership with Fuji, and and they have released a couple of Fuji produced original shows in Japan. But they are about to uh, debut their first original commissioned Japanese production next week. Um, Kohibana. It's about comedians, and it's made by a team of um, directors led by a very famous, um, actually veteran director, uh, Nuichi uh, Hiroki. Um, he's made quite a few films. He sort of jumps back between the indie scene and the commercial scene, and he's a very, very huge name to sort of lead the uh, the whole co- the whole you know Jap- Japan content with. So it's kind of interesting to see that you know Japan is the first battleground between Netflix and Amazon uh, in terms of original programming, and it's gonna be very interesting. When see when these both when these shows or when Netflix Japanese series debuts next week globally, um, it's going to be very interesting to see what Netflix comes up with in Asia. All right, let's move on to talk about some, I guess, cinematic movie news. Right, we're yep. going to talk a little bit about Andy Lau and Herman Yao, two of yep. our favorite Hong Kong people. Yep. Uh, yeah, Andy Lau um, making a film in Hong Kong now again. Uh, back with well, actually, I don't, I don't remember if Andy Lau's ever worked with Herman Yao before, has he? Um. Andy Lau has probably worked with Herman Yao in some capacity because Herman Yao is also a cinematographer. He was a longtime cinematographer. He's been around for a long time. And, and I'm pretty sure they've worked together something before. But this is the first time I remember that Herman Yao is directing a film with Andy Lau. Anyway, the film is uh, Shockwave. Uh, I think it's for Universe. Um, uh, the film in, in Chinese is called The, um, the uh, Expert, uh, The Bomb Detonation Expert. So, so you know, pretty much straightforward. I think it seems like Andy Lau is going to play a expert on explosives or a cop who, who you know, who um, disarm disarms explosives. Um, the film is currently shooting. There's not much of a plot at the moment, but um, a couple of weeks ago they did invite journalists to shoot uh, or to cover a day when uh, Andy Lau uh, essentially blew some shit up. Essentially, it was the the the, the two three minute long video. Um, shows Andy Lau sort of guiding the set, preparing the set, um, you know, telling people, telling the crew to, you know, do this and that as they're, you know, preparing for a pretty big explosion shot. Um, so yeah, this 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 seems like a big budget Herman Yao film, which is quite rare these days, isn't it? I mean, aside from you know last Raymond Wong, um, uh, big. Um, what do you call it? The Raymond Wong uh, New Year film, The Inspector Calls, or It Man Final Fight was a fairly actually okay mid mid budget film. But this this seems to be this this Shockwave film seems to be Herman Yao's biggest film in years, isn't it? Yeah, um, I'm I'm looking over his uh, his filmography. He was cinematographer for some of our Andy's early movies like uh, The Truth and Stars and Roses. 
I'm, he looking, I'm looking over the I don't see I don't think he's directed Andy before though. Yeah, this would be the first time he's directing Andy. I think Andy's company is also producing this one. So so that's why you see he's taking such a leadership role. Not just because it's Andy Lau, but because he's also the producer, so he has to show off to the journalists like, look, I'm I'm in charge on set as well. You know, meanwhile Herman is sitting somewhere having a cigarette. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> but um, He's like, you go ahead, Andy. You do you. You do you. Right? So the film is currently shooting. I think um, it looks like... Well, the speed Herman Yao look works at. I mean, he's probably done already. But yeah. but, we'll, but we'll I watch think it next the, week, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it, but it's a big budget film, and it's going to have a lot of you know explosives involved, and and I'm pretty sure it's probably still shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think that we will more, most likely see it sometime next year instead of this year. Good, but yeah, good. what do you think? You, you you would you see a film Andy Lau as a bomb detonation expert? Oh heck yeah! I mean, I've seen Andy Lau pretty much do everything right at this point. So, uh, you know, yeah, he, he's the most for me the most watchable actor in Hong Kong still, and uh, I, you know I look forward to when he's doing stuff. Not then it's not to say that I always come away totally enjoying the stuff he does, but uh, he's definitely one that'll draw me out to the cinema. And hopefully we'll get this in the cinema with his name attached to it, because we have had a couple Herman Yaw films that, um, you know, have, have had very sort of sporadic screenings. And uh, I'm thinking with Andy attached to it, we should get, uh, you know, pretty good screening coverage. This this should be pretty big release. Um, um, what I was going to say, if you still want your Andy Lau fix sooner or late than, than later, he is in um, Mission Milano, directed by... Uh, Wong Jing and co-starring Hua Xiaoming and it looks like total just utterly total crap. It makes you wonder what kind of leverage Wong Jing has over Andy Lau to make him do these type of films. I, I, don't, think anyway. it's, I don't think it's leverage. He, I think you know he's been on record as saying that he, he, he is where he is because of Wong Jing. Right, right I know. Jing yeah, gave I, him the work. So. Yeah, which and, is why I, I appreciate yeah. that kind of work ethic. You know, Wong Jing may be phoning it in but I, you know, as bad as it was, I enjoyed seeing Andy in uh, the God of Gamblers or the Vegas to Macau movie, you know. Um, that was, for me, the very minimal saving grace for that film, if any was to be had. Uh, not much else, to be sure. I mean, I mean Andy Lau continues, and I don't think you ever stop being, like, the most hardworking entertainer in, in Hong Kong, right? Um, or in the greater China area, in fact. Um, so... I it's just kind of sad because once in a while we get a good Andy Lau film, but in the middle you have to sort of wade through a lot of crap that he yeah. does because he is so hardworking. Switch, through. switch. There you go. That's one word. That, switch. Yeah. Yep. And and you know I'm glad that he's taking care of the kid and and the wife and he's making money for his family. But it's like, dude, take a yeah. break and spend your money. Spend some money. Just like take a break. Yeah. Just you know choose choose your projects, please. Yeah. But anyway, no, and no. Andy Lau film. Speaking of choosing projects, right, like a nice transition, we're here to talk finally about the film that if you haven't heard about it, you probably haven't been following Chinese cinema for very long. Um, This is sort of the legend that exists out there, and it's one that I wish I could, you know, at least uh, see a patchwork of in in some way, shape, or form. That is Empire of the Deep. (laughs) Dude, so so I I've I've heard bits and pieces of the film as well. I mean, every, I think I think all of us who follow these these shady 
um, cheesy Chinese big budget blockbuster. Must have seen the trailer or heard about it, seen a poster some time ago. It's like that deep memory that you think you've seen that person sometime back, and then years later you see you see it floating back. You see the person again. It's like, oh my god, I've seen you somewhere, right? This is what happens with Empire of the Deep. I I think when did you you've heard about this one before? Oh yes, right, it, it keeps resurfacing. Like every you know, it's like every couple years. I'll see another article talking about, oh, the film in China that was supposed to be the, the Chinese avatar that didn't get made, or, you know, this is the state of the, the Chinese film industry and billions of dollars down the tube. And uh, it, it, it kind of, you know, it's, it's like a zombie. It keeps resurfacing every now and then as a, as a story. Yeah, recently a friend, a friend uh, passed me this article uh, for, for this at Atavis, Atavis magazine, which is a really super comprehensive um, article about the making of the film. It covers pretty much the, the um, well, it actually covers the the major portion of shooting when they hired the third director of the film. And then it sort of flashes back to the earlier process, and it has pretty comprehensive about um, this third director's uh, experience on the set, then the fourth, then the fifth, and now the film has wrapped. And apparently, David did reshoots, and and it covers pretty much up to uh, just recent, very very recently. Um, so this article, which we'll link to to the website, or I think Paul would link it somehow when he posts this on on Facebook or whatever. Um, it pretty much just highlights everything that is on the Chinese film industry. Um, you see rich people who have no experience with filmmaking. Um, some does it to get get their girlfriend's job. Some does it to some do it to you know walk on a red carpet, or some do it to essentially um, uh, raise their stock prices, raise their profile, company's profile. This guy John Jang, he seems to want to be the next um, uh, Chinese James Cameron, and he's rich, and he's sort of making this this really you know doesn't really know what he's doing, and this huge ego maniac about his 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 you know patchwork of a script, um, and it just sort of highlights. Everything you know, from cutting corners to bad conditions to bad catering to hiring a the next guy comes along and calls him a Hollywood director. Pretty much everything that is is wrong with the Chinese industry. Okay, like I was called before film art. I was actually called. I was recommended to sit in on a meeting um, uh, to translate for a meeting. Uh, apparently, this team of Chinese people they're in Hong Kong, and they they tell me they're pitching it to me. They're not pitching to me, but they're asking me to do, do the interpreting for them. They say they have they're meeting these people from Hollywood in a hotel on a Saturday, whatever Saturday before film mart, and they want me to go interpret. And you know, it's just sort of ran, like ran an alarm every time a Chinese filmmaker who I've never heard of a producer says they're meeting people from Hollywood. I'm like, that can't be right. And this is this article essentially says why. Um, it's really long, but it's really quite epic, uh, and it's really quite comprehensive. And it it will, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't paint the Chinese film industry as a very good place. And there there are plenty of professionals and you know good filmmakers and professional filmmakers and investors who actually know what they're doing, who know the market well, and we're actually trying to you know push the Chinese film industry. And then there's these people. Um, so it's a very fascinating story, and I really highly recommend it. Um, Paul, have you had a chance to? Uh, you it's know, really, it's it? really long, and I've, I've, yeah. I was skimming through it before we started recording, and um, I was just, uh, you know, they talked a little bit about the first uh, director they brought over, and then they brought over um, a writer named Frakes, who was basically telling the guy, "You're just ripping off scenes from in, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark and uh, Indiana Jones and Star Wars, and and 
you know, the guy, the, the investor didn't want to hear any of it. And then the, I got to a point where they were mentioning uh, Lawrence Kasdan, right, who was uh, one of the guys working back in the original trilogy of Star Wars days. You mean Erwin Kirshner? Or, sorry, Erwin Kirshner, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, he, they, they were mentioning him, and uh, they were saying they were going to try and bring him on board, and that's where I, I've, I've left, and I'll go back and pick it up later. Yeah, it, it is just a super... Um, but a uh, lot of the other stuff it covers, I've, I've read elsewhere, you know, years ago, uh, the stuff about the suits... And yeah. the you know the, the the chaos on the sets and and those kinds of things. I mean, it it's legendary in I guess what it was trying to attempt to do, and then its failure <laughs> in trying to do in, in in being able to do that. I'm just amazed that it's still going on. That it, you know they haven't actually pulled the plug on it. Well, the thing is, there is really no. Pl- the film is completed. Apparently, it's complete. Like the actor even saw a went to a screening of the film in the Sony lot. Um, in Hollywood, uh, in in America, I, I hate to keep calling Los Angeles Hollywood because Hollywood is such is such a fake, you know, entity. It's 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 not, you know, it's the whole global um, uh, stereotype that anyone any filmmaker from LA is there is 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 automatically from Hollywood. So I, I I'm sorry I keep using the word Hollywood, but um, no, the, the film is already finished, but they just can't seem to find a distributor and and just sort of now sitting on a shelf. Hmm. Well, I maybe, can't wait to see it. Somebody will throw it on YouTube and then uh, we can all watch it. <laughs> I mean, Netflix, come on, guys. Global rights, yeah. yo. Global rights. There you um, go. Yeah, so if it does come out, we'll talk about it here on the show, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I do agree with your point, though. I mean, uh, I think that one thing we can say about the China movie industry is that it does run the gambit now because you do have really good films that are starting to be made. We talked about it last time, you know. I think The Monkey King 2 is uh, one that really is indicative of this then you get stuff that's in the middle ground you know we're getting what league of gods later this year that looks a bit iffy um but then you get stuff like this that just i mean there's stuff there is some stuff that i've tried to track down that just does you know you just can't get a hold of it it's just not released outside of china there's like these really low budget science fiction horror movies they make that i hear about all the time and uh you know i'll post messages to the guys i'm like guys is this coming to hong kong no you know, it's like, and I never heard of it, never will. Uh, so this kind of stuff does go on. There's tons of China movies that are made every year that we never hear anything about. And uh, unless you're in China, you'll you'll never get a chance to see them, which is unfortunate. No, or, or fortunate. <laughs> yeah, depending on your, your point of view on how much time you have that you want to waste, right? <laughs> uh, all right, let's take a short break, and we will come back and actually talk about a movie that's, uh, you know, uh, something worth talking about, I think. And that is the latest from Tangway, Book of Love. Welcome back. Our film this week is Book of Love, the semi-sequel from director Xu Xiaolu, who also contributes to the script. The story, Zhao Ye, played by Tang Wei, is a casino hostess in Macau. Uh, somewhere way across the other side of the world, Daniel Lo, played by Wu Xiaobo, is a real estate broker in Los Angeles. 
when they have a chance uh, mailing encounter via a book called the uh, called 84 Charing Cross Road, which ends with the two distant individuals actually corresponding through the mail with each other, they find that they become more and more a part of each other's lives, despite their distance. And as they both face their own personal ups and downs in their separate careers, they provide a kind of incorporeal counsel for each other. But the real question remains, what will be the extent of their relationship, and are they ever destined to meet? What can we say about this movie uh, without getting too deep into the plot right at the front is that it's not actually a sequel to Finding Mr. Right. And I think we talked about this before. It's got all the same parts. It's got all the same people, but it's a completely separate and, you know, different movie all to its own. So it's really just a sequel in name only, as it were. Um, but there are some narrative parallels that I that I did pick up on. So if you've seen Finding Mr. Right, that film has uh, a kinship to the old movie Sleepless in Seattle, right? This one has a similar kinship to this alternate media text, which is this book, this book that actually exists called um, 84 Charing Cross Road. Now, I'm a movie guy, so I know a lot about Sleepless in Seattle, having seen it multiple times. And for me, the references that they make, the kind of parallels they make in, in the first movie work really well. Not so much of a book guy, and I've not read the book. I'm not familiar with the author. I guess it's a fairly well-known work from the 70s, I think, was when it was written. And it's, the, the as I understand it, the story is somewhat paralleling the story that goes on in the book, which is about this you know, correspondence between the author herself and this other gentleman and the relationship that they strike up. So you have that kind of parallel working here in, in this movie, much like you had the Sleepless in Seattle parallel working in the first movie. Um, so let's talk about the length before we get too deep into anything, <laughs> because this movie is 130 minutes long. And this is not a summer blockbuster, it's not a Bollywood musical. Um, it's it's just a dramatic romance movie. The first film was 122 minutes long, so this one beats it by another eight minutes. My favorite romantic comedy, uh, which still kind of holds the, the, the a special place in my heart, um, my sassy, the Korean version of My Sassy Girl, clocks in at 123 minutes. Okay, if you see the the uh, Korean, I think that's the Korean cut, not the Hong Kong cut. Um, and that's my favorite, and that's a rom-com. That's got, you know, that carries me through with a lot of the humor that's injected. This, not, not so much humor in, in this. It's pretty, you know, pretty much a straight run. So it's a long movie for, for what it's trying to do. And really, there came, there, comes, there came a point at about the one hour and 40 minute mark when something happened that I'll talk about, and I'll go... I was just like, what? What? They're doing this now? Are you kidding me? And I'm just thinking to myself, how much more do I have to go <laughs> to get to the end of this movie? Um, but yeah, I, I'm making it sound much worse than it actually is. Uh, what you really have here is you have, for the most part, two movies. Um, I don't know in terms of the length. I, I wouldn't say they're exactly equal, but pretty close. You have one movie that's really going and focusing on Wu Xiaobo and what he's going through. And the other is focusing on Tang Wei and her story. And you then have these 
moments where the two are sort of corresponding and and um, sort of incorporeally appearing. They imagine each other. This is why when you see some pictures of Wu Xiaobo, he looks like this old gray-bearded professor. Um, and in others, he looks like, you know, this sort of you know, much younger guy. It's because in some scenes, she's imagining him. And in some scenes, he imagines her, what he think, thinks she looks like um, based on their correspondences with each other. And the imaginings are kind of, you know, they kind of look like the person, but they're a little bit off in terms of age and in terms of the sense of style of the person and whatnot. So you have these two movies. For me, the Wu Xiaobo's narrative was much more interesting. Um, and be a lot of it, it comes down to the cameos. Uh, his story is really highlighted by the appearance of uh, the great Hong Kong actor Paul Chun Pui, who is in full-on grumpy old man mode. And he was brilliant in it. I mean, he for me, he kind of stole the movie for the most part. Whenever he was on screen, I was like, give me more of that. That's, you know, that's what I want to see. There's a newcomer, too, who plays uh, his wife um, called Wu Yan Shu, and she's pretty amazing, too. I mean, the two of them, I think, had really good chemistry. She doesn't, I can't find any other um, references to work she's done, so this could be her absolute first time on screen, and she was doing a pretty bang-up job. And, you know, a veteran like Paul Chun Pui, who's been around forever and who's done all kinds of roles, uh, he was just great. So the th he gets involved with them. He's a real estate agent, and they're an elderly couple. They've got this big house, and he kind of goes in, and he wants to um, he wants them to sell their house, and uh, he has ambitions that he would like to buy it himself uh, as as the agent. And he strikes up a relationship with them. He starts you know becoming friendly with them, and they kind of look at him as sort of a almost a, a, an adopted son in some ways because they're actual son I guess is an astronaut he's like up at the space station and so they're basically alone they don't have anybody else but there's this whole central dynamic about all of them being sort of diasporic immigrants to the United States and the feelings of isolation the feelings of being cut off from their own culture from aspects of traditional Chinese and just you know living in America but not really feeling fully American um, and I think that that, for me, was the the more interesting of the two main stories that are being told. On the other hand, you have Tang Wei's story. And she has some, you know, good cameos on her side, too. You've got Kara Hoy, who's her, like, her stepmom, basically. You've got uh, uh, Wang Shiwen, who shows up as a sort of a high roller, big spender from China. And you've got Sam Lee, uh, who's a basically just a triad uh, uh, money lender and for her she works in the Macau casinos as a, a hostess now you can tell I mean I go to the I've been to the Macau casinos before um, I like going there hanging out at the hotel they've got some great family entertainment shows I don't gamble so and I guess I've, I'm never going to be in the world of high gambling I only know gambling from you know, watching stuff in movies, but apparently they have these people who work as hostesses. So they're, they're like these ladies who go with the high spender and they basically just stand over their shoulder and they talk to them, maybe give them some advice. And they're kind of there, I guess, is a little bit of eye candy too. I don't know. And then at the end of the gambling session, if the gambler has done well, they'll, you know, pass a chip or two over to them. 
So I've never, I never knew this was a job, but apparently it's a job, and that's her job in the film. Um, but unfortunately, it gets a little bit too uh, been there, done that in terms of what her narrative is about, because she gets in with um, an old boyfriend or an old friend who's really, you know, he's supposed to be super smart, and he's got a team, and they're counting cards, and they actually. They actually go into the description of the movie 21, right? So if you're familiar with that film, they actually talk about that movie. Uh, you know, they're basically narrating that movie about counting cards and, and what they're going to do, and they've got this big idea. Um, of course, she ends up in debt, and, you know, it's the whole thing. You gamble too much, you get in debt, you're in trouble, the triads come after you, yada, yada. We've seen that kind of stuff before. I didn't really think it was that interesting. Um, and then she's has the good fortune to meet this big spender who wants to spend more time with her as a result and he wants her basically on his arm and she's dealing with the decision should she do that you know because she can make up her losses if she you know basically prostitutes herself out to him or does she keep her integrity and you know so through the the mix of these issues that both these characters are going through they end up you know, writing back and forth to each other. And it's not very clear at first how that happens because basically they both encounter this book and they send this book back and then they end up getting mail from each other. Um, so the book is, the, the the title of the book is actually an address in the UK. So they're sending the book to the address in the UK and then they each think they are from, you know, different places. And then over time they learn a little bit more. They learn the truth about each other. But the big mystery is how did they actually get mail from each other if they're sending mail to the UK? So a little bit of a sort of, if you've seen the Korean movie Il Mar or the US remake, nowhere near as good, uh, The Lake House, right? Um, there's a little bit of mystery into how are these people actually corresponding. They do address that mystery by the end. Uh, I won't spoil it here, but needless to say, you know, it's like pretty much an hour and, and, and change with one side and an hour change on the other side and some shifting back and forth in between. And as I said, at a certain point, about an hour and 40 minutes in, they're still introducing some new characters as, you know, uh, romantic plots develop and things. And I'm just scratching my head going, really? I mean, we're still... Because normally by this point, you're thinking, all right, last 20 minutes or so, it's time to to get to the to the big tension point and wind things down. And they were still bringing out new people. So... Uh, there's a lot that they're kind of throwing at you, and it's a, it's a lot to sit through, I think, and not quite as entertaining for me as the first film as a result. If I could have had much more of Cho, uh, Paul Chun's presence on the screen, much more of his interactions with Wu Xiaobo, a bit less of the stuff that Tang Wei was going through because we've seen that kind of stuff before and I didn't find it quite as interesting, I, I think I probably would have come away liking this film a little bit, bit better. And perhaps there, you know, they could do a bit of tweaking, a bit of editing, and actually, you know, change it a little bit, trim it down a little bit to get to that state. But right now, I just think there's a lot of fat in this movie, and a lot of it just didn't fully uh, appeal to me. The other thing that's kind of getting in the way for of this film is that you have this. The, the whole premise is set up by first this encounter that uh, Wu Xiaobo's character has with this Western girl. Uh, I guess they're in LA at the time, and you know, so she's supposed to be American. And 
she's like fully coming on to him and then he responds and then she like gets up and shouts at him and makes this huge scene and it's so over the top in terms of the acting in terms of what was going on I thought it was fake I thought it was a dream I thought he was being pranked I think he mentions that um, when when it's happening but no it, it, the scene is played for real I mean it's like it was I, I was having flashbacks to Mr. Twister almost from the uh, you know from Ip Man 2 um, so I mean I'll, I'll be curious to see hear Kevin's thoughts on, on that particular scene but um, yeah, just really bad Western actor overacting for the most part um, for that one scene. And and that's sort of the scene that sort of launches the events that lead to the correspondence, which is, is kind of interesting. Um, beyond that, though, the other issue, too, is um, it's funny because Wu Xiaobo, his English is not very good. He does has, have some dialogue with his U.S. colleagues and things. And he actually says at one point, the first thing he did when he came to the U.S. was to learn English because you have to have really good English to do well, you know, there. But his English is not really that good, so maybe they could have spent a little bit of time giving him some extra extra uh, training before doing those scenes. That character supposedly lived in the States for 20 years! Yes. It, was really, it was kind of really hard to believe. My dad has lived in the States for 20 years. He still has an accent, but come on. At least he can communicate. He has a better accent than Wushu Bo. I, will, yeah. I promise you that. Um, so the third issue are, that, that I would say is that some of what's going on, the tension that they do kind of build towards the end, you kind of have to suspend your disbelief a little bit, considering the age we live in. We live in an age where, of course, we have Facebook, we have WeChat, we have Line, we have WhatsApp, we have all this, all these different means to find people, to connect with people. So when you kind of turn a blind eye to all of that, um, to, 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 I know they want to be romantic. They want to return to the idea of the romantic notion of writing letters to one another, and that's I think that's a lot of what the actual book that the movie titles derived from is about. But even so, there comes a point when it's like, okay, yeah, you've you've got other means. You know, at any point you could say, hey, here's my Facebook page, or hey, here's my phone number, or hey, here's my email, right? Um, And I think that a lot of the issues and the tensions they try to, you know, build up to towards the end would fall apart um but if you can suspend your disbelief and just go with the romantic notion of what they're trying to tell story-wise um it, it's it, it still works out somewhat okay um so yeah i i think that this film still has a lot going on for it i mean it's it location hops everywhere we're in macau we're in la we're in las vegas we're in china we're in the uk so it's really a film that goes places and budget-wise that shows You've got some really good cinematography. The film looks good. The production values are really high. Um, so it has a lot of that going for it. I'd say it probably, in some ways, looks better than the first film. Um, I think they do a lot with the, the locations and, and with the just the general set designs. I mean, things look interesting. They look nice. The costuming is good. So a lot of that works really well for the film. Um, it's a really nice-looking film to put upon me if you liked the first film i'd say you might like this one so give it a shot if the first film did not appeal to you all that much though then this is going to be a longer and less interesting experience than that so this might be one that you may hold off on so 
Um, also, don't see the trailer, because if you see the trailer, you pretty much see the end of the film. And I, I this is something that trailers are doing more and more, and I don't know why. Um, they can't get better trailer editors out there, but yeah, I... Normally, I'd post a trailer in the Facebook group and, and things like this, saying, yeah, this is their f the film we're going to talk about, but I don't want to do it because it kind of shows the ending, and that's just lame. Um, so, yeah, don't see the trailer uh, unless you want a little bit of a, some spoiler action going on. So, Kevin, any thoughts on this? I know you've seen it. You know, the, thing, the thing about Shui Xiaolu is that Shui Xiaolu, she is a scriptwriter first before she became a director. And I think scriptwriters tend to uh, be very liter literary people, very literature-based people. The thing is, I, I trained as a scriptwriter. I'm a, I'm a, I have a master's in scriptwriting. But the thing is, I'm not a big literary person, a movie person, uh, which is probably why I never made it as a scriptwriter. But the thing is, I think Shui Shalu is such a literature person that, that she wants to show people that she's read Charing Cross Road. And I get it. She's read it. But then she keeps reminding you throughout the film that this is a reference to 84 Charing Cross Road. This is a film, this is a reference to 84 Charing Cross Road. I've read Charing Cross Road. I get it. By like an hour in, I get it. I get it. I know you read the book. Good job. You understand the book. Good job. Go write like a dummy Charing Cross Road for dummies or something instead of writing the script. Okay, great. The thing is, the problem is that um, when you keep two characters apart for most of a film, you kind of have to make us care about whether they meet or not. But the thing is, by the time you get to that part, like you said, the hundred minute, hundred and ten minute part point, I don't care if they meet anymore, because the thing is, th these are two, you know, fairly solid individual stories there, and none of the, actually the whole letter writing don't really affect their life choices at all. Um, and that's a huge problem with the structure of the film is that they're writing these letters to each other. They're commenting on what's going on, but do there any of their action, like the letters, does it actually have real effect on the plot? It doesn't because they have all these near misses. And then they sort of somehow meet up at the very end just to sort of tie up the line, but it doesn't really affect the storylines at all. It's like they have to be wherever they are at the end just because they have to be. Um, you know, and it's a very difficult genre to pull off, right? You look at Sleepers in Seattle. Why is it? Why is it? Why why they pull it off? Because they have that hook right at the beginning to to you know build that connection between the characters, and it makes their again their actions interact interact with each other's lives. Same for You've Got Mail. You know, in in real life, they're actually uh, 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 feuding, but then you know, it turns out they have this big, you know great relationship online. Or um. A recent Thai film that I watched called Teacher's Diary. You should definitely see this film. Um, it's on English subtitled DVD. You can buy on Yes Asia. Um, it's about a again the two characters don't meet until possibly until the very sorry it's a spoiler but the characters don't meet for most of the film, but yet it's because one character's action directly has an effect on the action of the other storyline, which is why you care whether these people meet in the first place. But they do not build that sort of suspense here. Uh, and like you said, Paul, I mean, the thing with the, the side plot with Paul, Paul, Paul uh, Chim, Chimpoy is, is, is it great? It's great. And, and I think that's, that justified a, a film on its own. Um, what I do like is it seems like Shui Shalu, um, if each film of these, this series um, is trying to cover sort of this, these um, Chinese 
vices of contemporary Chinese people. Last film you have, you know, or, or these um, indulgence, again, you could say, luxuries, indulgent luxuries, right? Uh, you know, first film you have women who um, uh, go to America to give birth, rich women, or women who are birthed by uh, kids birthed by rich men, you know, sent to America, you know, to have the kids being born in America for a better lives. You know, that's a pretty taboo topic, and somehow she got it through, right? Um, or this one, talk about gambling. Um, a friend, uh, Maggie Lee, who writes for Variety, said her in a review that the film has more gambling than from Vegas to Macau Free. Yeah. And, and which is amazing because they it's do, all set they in do, Macau. They do, an, they, they do have an interesting moment where they actually address sort of the crackdown, too. Right. Because uh, there's a scene where it's like uh, the girls are saying, oh, you know, business is really bad. It's worse than it's ever been. And they're, they're really just talking about current events. Yeah, and 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 I think Tom Waits character says it best. You know, the film's about two, you know, Chinese people's two biggest vices: real estate and gambling. So I think that's really interesting. But the thing is, they don't connect it, uh, you know, as as well as they should. I think Cherry Cross Road is not really a great device because they never quite make that whole letter sending thing work. Even when that twist is revealed, I still don't think it works. I don't know about you, Paul. Um, I still don't think that 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 answers that answer works, especially the way he reviews it or she reviews it. It's quite cheesy. Um, uh, so the thing is, the film filled with flaws, and I think Tom Wei is fine. Wushu Boy is fine. Wushu Boy is fairly charismatic here when he's not speaking in English. Um, like you said, Pochum Pei is great. Uh, regarding the actress, the old actress, um, actually she was actually a stage actress um, since the sixties. And she retired in 2003 as a stage actress. And then in 2011, she started acting in television and mm-hmm. film. So she's a relatively new newcomer in terms okay, of TV. But she's, she's got skills film. because, yeah, but, I, I, I had yeah, a hard because, time believing they just picked somebody random and threw her up there next to Paul Chen Poi because she really holds her own well. Yeah, because she's been acting for 50 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it totally makes sense. But yeah, she's actually one of, she's what, what they call in China as a first rate, officially a first rate, uh, a nationally ranked first rate actor. Mm. So she is like that good, right? But yeah, no, she's just great. Um, and again, that story is great. And, and, and I think Shui Shalu just sort of got too greedy here and the whole thing is riding on the goodwill that she built with the first film and here you have all these near misses that you just like what's the point i don't care if they meet or not even to the very end i don't care if they meet or not you know they're supposed to have some kind of suspense on whether they meet i don't care i don't care they don't have to meet for the rest of the movie just sort of go on with your lives get off your lives get off the story um and that would have been fine that's really pretty much a death touch of the entire thing right when you don't care where the two characters who spent 120 whatever minutes apart and you don't care if they get together and that's pretty much what i think about the film yeah yeah i'd have to agree i i think uh, for me i was just much more invested in um Wushalu's relationship with the, the, the you know the the, the, the the older people he calls them and he ends up calling him like grandma and grandpa and he has this also this side story with this other uh woman who's coming in to basically buy real estate because she wants her son to go to, you know, a U.S. school, and then he's very rebellious. And they, I, I felt that that was okay, but actually they could have just trimmed that right out. I, I didn't think that that really, I, I know they were trying to parallel some of what the teenager was going through with, you know, what Wu Lo's character went through when he first immigrated. But I, I it was just unnecessary i think for for a lot of what they were doing but i yeah i just wanted more paul chen boy and i wanted more of them uh, on screen and less of of tongue because i i just didn't like her i didn't like her character you know this is this 
money hungry, you know, uh, person who, cause even, even the job, you know, the hostess job, she's just like, they're leeching off people. It's like, she's not even really doing anything as a job. She's just like there, you know, it's like not, I, I don't know how to describe it. I just found her very distasteful and I didn't want to see her end up with Lu Xiaobo because I thought, you know, and, and I, th- I guess that's kind of the way you feel about her in the beginning of the first film, but she ends up charming her way out of it, right? By the end of the first film, she had charmed her way into me liking her because, you know, you knew she was coming in to have an anchor baby in the first film and you knew, you know, her motivations were not good, but then you get more into her character. You learn that, you know, she's a mistress and she's not going to have any status in China if she just stays in China. And, and you start to feel sympathetic for her. And her character changes along the way, unlike this compulsive gambler. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah I just, I, I didn't feel feel much for, for her here. So that probably led to a little bit of bias on my part. But yeah, see it for the location. See it for the cinematography, production value, and for Paul Chun Poi. Screen West I've been listening to the Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, you can get in touch with us via the website at Kongcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter. That's twitter.com at Kongcast. You can email us, eastscreen at gmail.com, and you can also check us out over on Facebook at East S West S. So if you have anything you'd like to ask us, drop us a line, drop us a question, tell us you like us, tell us you don't like us, we would love to hear from you. Also, please follow Kevin, find out what he's doing and where he's doing it at. Where can they get more of what you're up to, sir? Yeah, you can uh, read my uh, articles uh, monthly on the Discovery Magazine and Silk Road Magazine uh, on your Cathay Pacific Airways flight or Dragon Air. You can also get the Discovery iPad app in the App Store. Uh, the June issue is coming up, and we have some great articles. Uh, Maggie Lee has an article about um, Stephen Chow and Mermaid. I have an article about, um, gosh, I don't remember what I wrote about anymore. Um, about, uh, God, you will see the magazine for yourself. Um, you'll see it. Uh, it's a pretty good month, I think. So, yeah, it's on iPad app. Uh, it's on the iPad uh, app, app store right now already. So check it out. I'm on Twitter at the Golden Rock. You can also contact me at thegoldenrock at gmail.com. Um, that's it. Excellent. Next show will be 193. I don't know what's coming up, uh, what we'll be seeing next. Uh, I'm not sure what's on the horizon. But uh, it should be something. I, we did just have the trailer for the new uh, Journey to the West film. Have you seen that? Uh, new Journey to the West film? Oh, God, the Jeff Lau film. Jeez. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, that was pretty pretty disappointing. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's in the near future, but it's at some point in the future. But, yeah, we'll have something on our next show. So all that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Green, West Green podcast saying, let it ride, and we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. Sweet.